Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. Um, but if you'll turn uh, with me in your copy uh, of God's Word, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15 this morning. Um, and if, during this, this quarantine season, everybody has done things uh, a little bit different. But one thing that uh, my wife and I were talking the other night was we've learned to appreciate little things. And uh, I'm sure that each of you can relate to that in some way, shape, or form. And, and for us, one of the little things that we've come to appreciate more during this time is the, uh, the gift that is Disney+. Plus. And um, you, you just forget how many great stories that Disney holds the rights to. And so since, and since March, I don't want to give the impression that we're hardcore binge watchers, but since March, we've made it through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've, uh, we've made our way through part of the Star Wars saga. And each Friday night has been movie night in our house since, um, since the COVID-19 outbreak began. And um, a little, you know, a few weeks into that, my wife and I are like, man, there's, there's movies on Disney Plus because our rule for the kids, we're not renting anything. We have, you know, a century's worth of movies. And we need to start showing them some of the movies that we love. And one of my personal favorites uh, is one that you could argue is one of the, the best football movies of all time, which is Remember the Titans. And the, uh, the short version of that story, it's based on a true story uh, from 1971 where T.C. Williams High School was one of the first um, high schools in the district to desegregate, and you've got uh, white players and African-American players who don't particularly want to play together, coaches trying to figure that out, a community around them that's, that's kind of telling them this isn't supposed to work, and yet when the, the coaches are able to lead these players to, to being more committed to a cause greater than themselves rather than focusing on secondary differences, something amazing happens. Now, as a guy, you go, well, yeah, they win the state championship. And that is true, but even the coaches, if, if you see them interviewed the, who the story is based on, they would say that that championship helped the community along in becoming a community versus staying segregated. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie comes towards the end when one star player on the team is in the hospital from a car wreck and his teammate of a different color comes to visit him, and the nurse stops him at the door and says, I'm sorry you can't come in. This is for family only. And the, the football player laid up in the bedroom, or bedroom, in the hospital bed, uh, says, are you blind? He's talking to the nurse. says, are you blind? Can't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. And I tell you that because that is what we are after this morning, what Paul is pushing the church towards in Romans 15. If, uh, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Re-Exodus, we have, have looked to re-remind ourselves uh, and re-explore our core values as a church, to proclaim to ourselves and to one another the things that, that we hold most valuable that will not change even when the world looks different. And, and as a church, we, are, we believe we are redeemed people who wor- seek to worship and serve God in the world. And that aspect, people, that's from the idea that God, we were not a people. We didn't have a heritage and God gave that to us. And we've learned throughout our series that gospel doctrine creates gospel Christians who are called to the mission of building gospel culture. And we begin to see last week that gospel culture can't exist without gospel unity, without different people being willing to come together as one family because they worship and serve the same God. And so as we look at Romans chapter 15, verses one through seven this morning, we're gonna continue to see the apostle Paul call us to and instruct us on how to pursue gospel unity with one another. And so if, if you were going to see one sentence this morning, this is what I hope that we see, that because God has pursued unity with us through the gospel, 
We must pursue unity with one another with the gospel. So let's look now at Romans chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, but let us, each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, God, for the gift of of being together, even in smaller numbers, wearing masks. God, it is good to be together uh, to learn about you. Father, thank you that you've made a way for us to be unified to you, to be reunited to our Heavenly Father. And Lord, thank you for the call and for equipping us to pursue the same unity together so that we might proclaim what you've done for us to the world. Lord, we need your word to do that. So would you, would you move us um, and guide us in your word this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So because God, because God has pursued unity with us through the gospel, we must pursue gospel unity with one another. I believe Paul unpacks that for us in three ways this morning. So I'll give you the points so you know where we're going, and then we'll begin to unpack them. One is he calls us to serve out of gospel empowerment. Two, he shows us that that gospel empowerment comes from experiencing the gospel ourselves. And then three, that it leads to gospel exaltation. So first, gospel empowerment. I'm going to put a quote up here on the screen. There's a a phenomenal quote from a just okay movie. There's been too many Spider-Man movies to keep track of at this point. But the original from 2002, which is not as good as the Marvel Cinematic Universe ones, but that doesn't mean that there's not a great quote that Uncle Ben says to Spider-Man sitting in the car before Spider-Man goes to the library one day. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. And that is exactly what Paul is getting at in the first three verses of our text this morning. When he says, we who are strong, that can literally be translated, we who are powerful. The Greek word there uh, is the word for power. So he's saying, we who are powerful are obligated to or legally indebted to serve the weak or serve those who are struggling. Now, in order for us to understand this a little bit better, we need to understand who are the powerful that he's referring to and who are the weak. And in order to do that, we need to just quickly recap chapter 14. So Romans 15 is a continuation of Romans 14, in which Paul is calling the Roman church to unity. He is challenging them, hey, remember the gospel, remember what matters most. He's trying to protect them from splintering themselves from the inside because they're, they're starting to argue and get fixated on secondary differences. And last week, Pastor Nathan did an awesome job of helping us to begin to understand the specifics of, of, the, of the difficulty and the dynamic in, in the church in Rome. So I'm quickly going to recap that. But your 30-second history lesson, right, is that the church in Rome was made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, the challenge that presented is you have two incredibly different groups of people, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different preferences, different worldviews. And on top of that, you've got hundreds of years of dissension that have been trained into each side of, of the church. 
And so not only are they already noticeably very different from one another, they've been taught to, to think and stay different from one another, and now they're coming together as one body to serve Jesus. And so on one side, you have the, the Jewish Christians who have been raised strictly in Old Testament law. They follow festivals and food regulations. They don't eat meat. Some of them don't eat certain meat. Some of them don't eat meat at all. They don't drink wine. They, they have to recognize certain days as special. I mean, it's this whole system of things. And on the other side, the Gentile Christians are like, we didn't have any of that before. We don't need any of it now. And so the tension on one side is that Jews are beginning to become angry, resentful, and judgmental. On the other side, the, the Gentiles' temptation is to just say, hey, we, did, we didn't need your opinion before. We don't need it now. So the, the challenge that's brewing is you've got differences of opinions starting to get elevated over and above the gospel. And Paul is, in 14, Paul is leading them away from that, and he summarizes 14 with this, and this will help us better understand who the powerful and who the weak are. In Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 20, it says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Which brings us back to 15. The powerful, and Paul says we, he's including himself in that. Those who are powerful are those both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are secure in their faith, who are able to live their life and make their decisions from a place of faith versus fear. Their life is lived out of an overflow of worship versus trying to just not screw things up. They are, they are operating from a place of love versus a desire to protect their own ideas and to just win an argument. Those who are weak or those who are struggling are those, and he's not saying that they're not Christians, but he's saying those in the church who are, who are just not, they're, they're too entangled in these secondary things. The, the Jewish Christians can't let go of food laws. They can't, they're, they're struggling with anxiety by let, to, to let go of certain things they were taught for so long were necessary. Now they're being told they're not necessary and they don't know what to do with it. And that's leading to, to resentment towards their Gentile brothers and sisters. And on the other side of that, those who are struggling are the Gentile Christians who are struggling with just not wanting to rub things in, in the Jewish Christians' faces and say, we're not obligated to care about how you think or feel. And then again, those who are powerful, though, are those on both sides who are so secure and so excited about what Jesus is doing in their life that they're operating from faith versus fear. So now we know who the powerful or the strong are. We know who the weak are. Let's look at what Paul is calling them to. When we say, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, in verses one and two, Paul begins to lay out that responsibility or that obligation of those who are strong. He says, bear with the failings of the weak and let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself. In short, what Paul is saying, those of you who are strong, those of you who are thriving, those of you who are secure, your obligation is to serve the ones who are struggling like Jesus served you. Now, it's easy enough for us to say that we'll just do it like Jesus did, but we need to understand what that means. And in this case, we see three traits. We see empathy, we see humility, and we see sacrifice. First, empathy. When Paul says, bear with the failings of the weak, you may hear that and think, okay, well, if somebody in your own life that's struggling comes to mind, and maybe your inclination to say, okay, you know what? That's, absolutely, I can be more patient with them. 
okay? I can put up with that a little bit longer. Or you may think, you know what? I need to have lunch with them this week and, and, and share some. I need to change their mind. I need to help them think differently. But that's not what Paul is saying. The phrase bear with one another's weaknesses or bear with the weaknesses of, the, the language there is meant to create a, a picture in your mind of somebody who's trying to, to lift something on their shoulders that's way too heavy for them to lift by themselves. And you see that struggle and you come alongside them and you get underneath it with them and you carry it with them. Empathy, by definition, is the willingness, capacity, and action of vicariously experiencing with someone what they're experiencing. And while we don't see that word explicitly in the Bible, one um, commentator says this about empathy in relation to the gospel, that empathy can be found at the heart of the gospel message because you have a God who is not only willing to or desire to understand human experience, but rather sent his own son into the world to endure that human experience and to redeem, to redeem it. Hebrews 4.13 says, tells us the same thing. I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but that we don't, we, it says we have a high priest who has endured everything that we have endured. And so that when you are in need, you can approach him boldly. Paul isn't calling those who are strong to come to the weak and say, hey, if you would think like I think, your life would go much smoother. He's saying, be present with them. Build relationships with them. Understand where they're coming from, why they feel the way they feel, why they struggle with what they struggle with, and you walk beside them in order to help them grow just like Jesus did for you. Now, that's also going to require humility. Where Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, not to please ourselves, but for his good. Pastor Nathan began to unpack humility for us last week, and essentially it is the, the, the lowering of ourselves to place another, another's needs and preferences above our own. And when Christ is elevated, when we're humble before God, humility towards others begins to flow naturally. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, serve your, serve your brother. To please means to meet their needs, to bring them joy, and do so for no other reason than to build them up. Not to make yourself feel better, not to check a box, not to, you know, to, in hopes that you're doing something right because God has called you to it and for their good. That's humility. And then when Paul references Jesus in verse three, again, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Yes, he's calling us to follow the ultimate example, right? You want to learn how to, follow, to, to live like Jesus? You look at Jesus. And he's also preparing those who are strong for the, the fact that if you're going to serve out of gospel empowerment, if you're going to seek to honor Jesus and fight for gospel unity and really step into other people's struggles, it's gonna cost you something. He says, Jesus suffered, Jesus he reproached, essentially saying Jesus was insulted, Jesus was mocked, Jesus was rejected. So if you're going to love this way, if you're going to pursue unity to this capacity, it's gonna cost you something. It's gonna cost you patience, it's gonna cost you time, it's gonna cost you heartache, it's, it's sacrificial to pursue gospel unity, to serve out of gospel empowerment requires sacrifice. Now, I do want to note also that what we are not saying this morning, what the Bible is not saying is that you hit some stride in your Christian walk where you don't struggle anymore because that's not true, at least not until Jesus comes back. So those of you who are strong, that's not saying those of you who don't have issues anymore. It's those of you who God has continued to grow and strengthen so that you can healthily deal with your own issues, you have an obligation to walk with others who aren't there yet. 
But on the other side of that, if you're a new Christian still trying to figure some of this stuff out, you in no way, shape, or form are less than. You have the same status, the same connection to Jesus as, as any pastor theologian that might pop into your head. And because you have the gospel, you also have what you need to serve others. But there also is a reality to maturity and growth leads to the ability to disciple better. Now, none of that happens. Serving out of gospel empowerment, in any case, though, how it cannot exist unless we've experienced the gospel for ourselves. It's like we said, we serve with gospel empowerment. Next, we experience the gospel for ourselves. Verse three again, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. We have to experience the gospel for ourselves. First, we see this in just taking a minute to consider who it is that's writing this letter. See Apostle Paul. And if you're, if you're new to the faith, or you're not sure about all the, the Bible history, or you've never been in a Southern Sunday school class, here's the quick recap. Paul was a PhD level Pharisee. He had the Old Testament memorized. He was flawless or as flawless as a human can be in keeping all the traditions and, and all the requirements that some of these Jewish Christians are struggling with letting go of. But on top of that, he was so committed and so rooted in his mindset that not only was he intelligent and successful beyond his years, he's also a terrorist. He was a murderer. So he was the equivalent of a PhD level ISIS representative. That, that's, that was his story. And Jesus knocks him off a donkey with a bright light and then turns him into a missionary. So Paul's coming at this when he's calling the church to unity. He's like, guys, you don't like, I understand better than anybody what it is to be steeped in one mindset so much so that I hated the other side of it. And Jesus saved me and he freed me. And then he's saying the, 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 on the other side of the Gentiles, I know what it is to be free. And you've got to use that freedom well. But Paul has never gotten over what Jesus has done for him. And so if we're going to serve out of gospel empowerment, if we're going to fight for gospel unity, you've got to have the gospel yourself. Now, Paul also is pointing us to Jesus. When, when we mentioned Christ's example just a minute ago, but any time that, that Paul references Christ's example, whether it's in the book of Romans, the book of Philippians, uh, the book of Ephesians, there are all, multiple times throughout his letters where he mentions Christ's example. And each time that he does that, he's absolutely, whether he's challenging husbands to love their wives better, whether he's challenging the church to have a better attitude, anytime he does that, he absolutely wants you to see Christ's example but anytime he does that, over and above that, what he's ultimately doing is pointing the church back to the cross so that they remember what saved them, so they remember why the church exists in the first place, so they can remember and never forget what Jesus has done for them. The cross is where your hope comes from. The cross is where Jesus paid your debt. The cross is where Christ came for every man, every woman, every tongue, tribe, and nation who shared the same problem. And Jesus provided the ultimate solution. And then we'll ultimately see that in God's word. When Paul says, for, for whatever was written in former days, he's calling the church back to the scripture. And if we're saying we can't serve with gospel empowerment without gospel experience, you will always, most consistently, most reliably experience the gospel in God's written word. And so if we're going to pursue gospel unity, if we're going to live out of gospel empowerment, if we're going to experience the gospel day in and day out, you have to go back to the Bible because that's why the Bible was given, so that you could know God and know the gospel. And what Paul is doing here, one, he's calling Christians to know what has been written. He's also specifically, in this case, referring to the Old Testament, 
just by sheer virtue of the old, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And by doing that, he is calling the, the Jewish Christians to remember Christ has fulfilled everything that you're worried about. Remember that. Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise you and your ancestors have placed your hope in. On the other side, he's bringing the Gentiles together with the Jews by saying, hey, and because you are part of the family of God, this was written for you also. And he's saying you can find instruction there, God's moral law, God's teaching. You can learn from King David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the people who have gone before you to learn what it looks like to follow God. He says you can find endurance because you've seen other people suffer and other people deal with the same things. And on top of everything else, you've seen every promise God has ever made been fulfilled. That gives you endurance because you then have hope. He's like, and he's saying, because if Jesus has fulfilled all these promises, the last one we're waiting on is his return. And it's not an if, it's a when. And so we see Paul's call for us to experience the gospel through God's word. And if we are serving out of gospel empowerment and we are experiencing the gospel in pursuit of gospel unity, then that leads us to the end result that Paul is after, which is gospel exaltation. And exaltation is such a phenomenal word. It's got two meanings. One is a feeling of extreme joy or happiness. The other is to the act of lifting someone higher than yourself. And for the Christian, those two definitions come together as one. Because we are called to and offered extreme joy and happiness as a result of lifting up Jesus. Look at Paul's prayer, uh, in ver- starting in verse 5. It says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we see his, his prayer He is praying for the church, and he's praying in front of them so they can see what his prayer is, that they would love one another like Jesus has loved them, that they would serve one another like Jesus has served them, that they would be so unified and so committed to the gospel and God's mission for the world that as different as they look, as different as they think they may are, the watching world sees a family, a unified, beautiful thing that they want to be a part of. And in history, that that is how the early church was known. It was this crazy phenomenon where there was no promise of wealth. In fact, your your guarantee wasn't money or fame. It was you're probably going to die. Right? Sign me up. And yet people were bought in. And what the watching world saw was was a body that was so committed to the gospel that they preached and loving one another and serving the community around them that you couldn't deny its validity. And that's what Paul is after, and that's what he prays. And so really quickly, you've got to connect verse 5 back to verse 1 and understand that if this is something we want, and this is something we're going to fight for, then we've got to pray for it. If we want to see God's mission fulfilled in the world, we want to see Christian unity take place, we want a gospel culture to grow and thrive, you've got to ask God to do it. Because otherwise, we're trying to fulfill his mission without asking him to participate in it, and it ain't going to work. But then we see the result, this praise that that would generate, again, in verse 6, or verses 5 and 6, where Paul mentions harmony, and he mentions one voice. He's painting this picture, if you've ever been in in music, especially a choir or an a cappella group, that when you, you work and you work and you work and you finally get to performance time, you've got all these different voices, and you finally lock on that one note. And there's a hush over the crowd, but it's, it's too powerful to ignore and too beautiful to not want to hear it again and again. 
And that's what Paul is praying for and calling the church to. And then he says, and ultimately, this is going to happen when the people in God's church become committed to consistent hospitality. Look at verse 7. So gospel exaltation, right? And we do that in here. We've been doing that this morning, masks on or not, singing, right? That's part of exaltation. But exaltation is a daily practice of hospitality. Look at verse 7. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That phrase, welcome one another, literally translates to inviting someone into into your home and treating them like family, which is exactly what Jesus has done for us that we were lost and we were far off and he brought us in and made us sons and daughters. So what do we do? I have two things. One is a question. Have you experienced unity with Christ? You personally, have you said yes to Jesus? Because in a world full of disunity, right, where arguing is the most popular language anybody wants to speak, right, every social media outlet, this is just a fight waiting to happen. In a world where none of us know exactly what's going on, God offers something better, something sure, and it's a free gift. Have you said yes to that gift? Second, if your answer to the first question is yes, Yes, I'm a follower of Christ. I believe he died for my sins and he rose again, and I can't wait for him to return. Here's my challenge to you. In a world full of disunity and arguing, in your interaction with people, let your desire to glorify God and lead others to him always be greater than your need to be right. I'll close with this quote. This is from um, Dr. Eric Mason, who is a pastor at uh, Acts 29 Church in Philadelphia. He says this, in regards to Christian unity, that when Christ returns, all of our bylaws and all of our documents for our organizations will dissolve. We will be consumed with knowing Jesus and knowing one another. My urgent plea for the church is that we begin to let that future truth impact our present reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for bringing us together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that we were far away and you brought us close and you treated us like family. And Lord, we thank you for the call to to do that with one another so that more and more people can know Jesus. We can't do that without you. And so we ask for you to, to guide us and to bless us and to go with us as we leave this place and seek to honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.